Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Last week, Japanese scientists placed explosive detonators at the bottom of Lake Loch Ness to blow Nessie out of the water. Sir Court Godfrey of the Nessie Alliance summoned the help of Scotland's local wizards to cast a protective spell over the lake and its local residents and all those who seek for the peaceful existence of our underwater ally. Bullcrap, Napoleon. Randy, why don't you go find your grandma or something? You're bugging the heck out of me. Gosh. Idiot. Thank you, Napoleon. You may sit down now. Welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. In this episode, we are looking at number ones from quarter two of 2004, from April to June. June 2004 also being the month where a certain movie close to my Idaho heart was released, Napoleon Dynamite. And as a matter of fact, it will be semi-semi-related to one of the number ones in this episode. But until then, let's not waste any time. Let's get started with the number ones. We're starting off on the week ending April 3rd, 2004. One week at number one, it's our friends The Clash again. With Safe European Home and Julie's been working for the drug squad. Here's a clip of Safe European Home. These two songs are from the second Clash album, Give Em Enough Rope. That actually was their first release in the U.S., since, as I said in the last episode, the U.S. CBS label refused to release their debut album, thinking it wasn't commercial enough. Them Americans aren't ready for those British punks. For this album, the Clash didn't choose their producer. The CBS label chose it for them. It was Sandy Perlman, known for producing American rock band Blue Oyster Cult. Whether he was the inspiration for Christopher Walken's character on the more cowbell sketch on SNL, we don't know. But I'd like to think so, even if it's not right. Anyway, Give Him Enough Ropes sounds more cleaned up than the debut, sounding more like hard rock than punk, maybe a concession to U.S. audiences. It's a weaker album than the debut, and certainly weaker than London Calling. The Clash themselves didn't feel that thrilled about the recording sessions. They felt that Perlman was too nitpicky and destroyed the spontaneity that made the debut so great. But it's not without a few classic songs in their own right, 
including these ones. Julie's in the Drug Squat sounds more like a Leonard Skinner rocker, barroom piano and all, and it definitely looks ahead to the stylistic diversity of London Calling, but I chose to sample Safe European Home, as it does have a pretty interesting story behind the song. The two main members of The Clash, Joe Strummer and Mick Jones, were sent to Jamaica for a songwriting session, and even though the two guys were big reggae fans, the experience was not what they had expected. They weren't looked too kindly by the locals there, a bit of a hostile environment, but as we could tell in the lyrics, they didn't blame the locals for thinking that at all, especially the line, I went to the place where every white face is an invitation to robbery. They got to see what it was like to be a minority in a different land, which, living in the UK, their safe European home, was the exact opposite. Musically, it fits very well as the opening track on the album. It has a lot more shots of energy than a lot of the other songs on there, and I never get tired of the call and response in the verses, where Strummer sings a line, and then Mick Jones answers with, Where'd you go? And Strummer finally answers the question in the chorus, I went to the place where every white face, as I said earlier. The first half of the song is that, the three verses in the chorus. Then the other half shows him doing more of a reggae vamp, where Joe Strummer scats lines like Rudy, Rudy, Rudy Can't Fail, which would later be a title of a song on London Calling, Rudy Can't Fail. Definitely a classic song from a little less than classic album. Give Him Enough Rope definitely served its purpose. There wouldn't be any London Calling without the growing pains and diversity of this album, so it all works in the end. After one week at number one, The Clash gave up that spot to Elvis Costello, whom we'll be seeing three times this episode. Here he is with two weeks at number one, The Other Side of Summer. The sun struggles up another beautiful day And I felt glad in my own suspicious way Another Elvis Costello song, but unlike most of the other number one hits by Elvis Costello in this period, this one's not in the context of the album. The Other Side of Summer comes from his 1991 album Mighty Like a Rose, and I read about that song having some success on rock radio, but that the rest of the album was pretty spotty at best. At this point, Elvis Costello was on his own. He had ditched the attractions, moved to the Warner label, and was coming off his biggest hit to date, the top 20 song Veronica in 1989. And indeed, The Other Side of Summer was number one on the U.S. modern rock charts for four weeks in the summer of 1991, no less. This was back before grunge really took hold, and I think a lot of rock radio was still the college rock and whatever from the 80s. As you can no doubt tell from the sample and the title, the song is a bit of a Beach Boys pastiche. 
It's got those ooey-oo backing vocals, a chorus that totally sounds like something that the Beach Boys would do, and even a few different sections, kind of like Smile, different moods too. Despite all that, it's not a happy song at all. He's talking about the astroturf, the poisonous surf, you know, the other side of summer. And as much as I stand for Elvis Costello, I can easily poke a little fun at this song, like, Hey dude, it's summertime, go outside, go surfing, enjoy the sun, quit ranting about everything, quit being so negative, dude. But that's our Elvis, buddy. Now I've heard other criticisms of this song that aren't completely invalid. The production is a little bit lacking. He's trying for that Beach Boys, everything in the kitchen sink, or a wall of sound approach. And it sounds a little flat, a little muffled. If I was more of a producer, I'd be able to say it more in terms of producer speak, but it does sound a little off. And then in the middle, for no reason, he starts taking shots at other rock stars. Was it a millionaire who said, imagine no possessions? A poor little schoolboy who said, we don't need no lessons? That would be John Lennon's Imagine and Roger Waters slash Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, respectively. It's not the first time I've heard that argument against John Lennon's Imagine. I'm a little tired of it, and I'm surprised Elvis Costello would easily take the bait there. I'm not as familiar with Roger Waters' background, if he was poor in poverty, dropped out of school or whatever, but yet he's saying we don't need no education. I don't know what that has to do with the other side of summer, or with something like fashion shoots with Beck and Hanson, Courtney Love, and Marilyn Manson. Call back to the new radicals, you get what you give. Despite all that, it's a gas to listen to as a song. And if you're going to do a Beach Boys pastiche, you're better off doing a mid to late 60s Beach Boys one rather than the early surf ones. And that's what Elvis Costello does here. Very intricate harmonies, a lot of twists and turns in the melody, not dissimilar to, say, heroes and villains. Yes, Elvis? Maybe you think summer is stupid and there's the other side of summer. But I still like the song. Replacing E.C. at number one is his bitter rival. Or not, I don't know how well they knew each other. It's Joe Jackson with Do the Instant Mash and Pretty Girls. Here's a sample of Pretty Girls and yeah, I got stuff to say about that. Oh, here she comes just to walk, just, just to walking down the street singing Taking it easy just to see what I could find I found the girls there Long legs and blonde hair All getting set to make a mess out of my mind Hey! Eyes left I got the hard word You know what I heard They say the miniskirt is coming back in style I say it's not fair But why do they care When you got power then you for a while Hey! Eyes right See the pretty, pretty, pretty girls in the street This marks the third time that Joe Jackson has appeared on Music Is My Radar. To recap, he's a bit of a poor man's Elvis Costello. Fun fact, he's exactly two weeks older than Elvis Costello. These two songs come off his first album, Look Sharp, in 1979, 
by far his most Elvis Costello-like release he ever had, in that it's squarely in the angry British new wave genre. And at least at this point in Jackson's career, any comparisons between him and E.C. would leave Joe Jackson looking unfavorable. His voice is a lot weaker at this point, a lot more whiny, and Elvis Costello would employ a lot of clever wordplay poetry to disguise some of the bile, but Joe Jackson had none of that wit. I had mentioned when talking about Elvis Costello's This Year's Model how some of the songs sound kind of incel-like. I take that back. That would more apply to the stuff on Look Sharp. In it, he talks about how happy loving couples ain't no friend of mine because they're so damn happy. And fools in love, are there any other kind of fools, pain? And is she really going out with him? Yeah, listening to this stuff with 20-20 years, you can practically smell the neck beard and the fedora coming off the guy. Much as I like Look Sharp, it's a very tight album, with great performances. I'll have to admit that some of it sounds a little sad, shall we say. It doesn't apply to the first song in this joint number one, Do the Instant Mash. That's more about having menial jobs and making up some dance craze that doesn't exist, the Instant Mash. But the nice guyness really comes to the fore on Pretty Girls. If that intro sounds a little familiar to you, it's kind of a parody of how that song Do Wah Diddy starts out. There she was, just a-walking down the street, singing do-wah-diddy-diddy-dum-diddy-do. I have a lot of time for British Invasion, but that particular Manfred Mann song, I have always disliked that song. Its use in the Bill Murray movie Stripes notwithstanding. So it's quite fun to hear it subverted in such sarcastic, sneering fashion here by Joe Jackson. But the rest of the song is quite cringy. In it, Joe Jackson talks about how all the pretty girls on his street and in his town, they dress pretty just to rub it in, to show it off, and show what he can't have. And dear, dear listener, that's exactly the mindset I had during this time in 2004, and a good deal of my 20s. I didn't get a lot of dates, because I didn't try for a lot of dates. I just assumed that I didn't have a chance. They were too pretty for me. And like Mr. Jackson, I would sometimes get in a cynical funk when I saw a really attractive lady walking down the street or wherever else. It is only a few steps away from such horrible thoughts as, well, did you see what she was wearing or she was asking for it? Or more extreme cases that we don't need to get into because we've heard so much about it in the news the last couple years. So yeah, had to get real there for a minute. Luckily, I'm nowhere near that mindset that I was in my 20s. And getting back to music, luckily Joe Jackson showed that he had a lot more up his sleeve than just that trick, as his later albums would show. Not one that I listen to a lot, but that's how it goes sometimes. Moving on. After one week off of number one, Elvis Casello jumped back on the top, week ending May 1st, 2004 for one week, with King Horse and New Amsterdam. Check out some of King Horse.
With these two songs, we're back to Elvis Costello in an album context. Both songs come from his 1980 album Get Happy, his fourth overall album. While My Aim is True was rockabilly, this year's model was punk, at least in attitude, and Armed Forces was new wave. Get Happy was his R&B slash soul influenced album. Unfortunately, you can't talk about Get Happy without addressing the elephant in the room, the event that may or may not have inspired him to make such an album. During the American tour for Armed Forces, EC was in a hotel bar with Stephen Stills and Bonnie Bramlett having some drunken argument, and EC used the N-word twice referring to James Brown and Ray Charles, referring to them as jive-ass or blind and ignorant in the N-word. According to him, he was trying to bring the argument to a swift conclusion by upping the ante, trying for shock value, some bad drunk logic. In my heart of hearts, I believe that that was the case. There's no racist views from EC, just him being a young drunk dumbass. A very regrettable incident, but I couldn't just brush it over. He claims that that wasn't the inspiration to making such an album like Get Happy, but we'll never know. Back to the album. It's 20 tracks lasting about 50 minutes, so there's a lot of just quick and energetic songs that are really short. As a result, I had to take this album one half at a time, just listen to 10 songs, really assimilate them, and then get to the other half a few weeks later. Although a lot of the songs were a bit of a samey jumble, King Horse stuck out to me right away. That piano line at the start of the song that recurs several times breaks my damn heart every time. One of my favorite piano riffs in all of rock music, really. Also, I love that overdubbing effect that EC had on his voice, where he recorded a vocal track as normal, then sounds like he ran to the other side of the studio and shouted the vocal an octave higher than the other one. Just makes for a very unsettling song. Now the typical question that we have for any Elvis Costello song, what the hell is it about? I've consulted several websites on this song meaning song facts, and even they're kind of flummoxed. It's probably about a dysfunctional relationship as a lot of Elvis Costello's songs are, but his wordplay is quite obscure, even for him. I didn't really think it was about a relationship the first hundred times I heard it. The second verse, it sounds like he's talking about a waitress who's doing her damnedest, hit the till, ring the bill, never spill a sip, but the patrons are drunken jerks who don't give her any respect or maybe catcall her or whatever. But then again, that's only that one verse. The rest, I can't even tell you what it's about. Nor do I know what King Horse is, or Tenderness and Brute Force. I'd long suspected that maybe it was a play on words like Sofa, King, but I really don't know. Like I've said time and time again, I noticed the musical stuff in the voice before the lyrics, so King Horse is easily in my top 5 favorite EC songs, maybe even top 3. And a few words about New Amsterdam, the other song on this number 1 list. It's a lot different from the rest of the album, much more acoustic based. And I think it's all wordplay. Step on the brakes to get out of her clutches. And speak double dutch to a real double duchess. Yes, I will relish every opportunity I have to use my Elvis Costello voice. Aren't you guys lucky? The week ending May 8th, 2004, we go across to Deutschland. For two weeks at number one, here is Kraftwerk beat Autobahn.
Yeah, I know what you all are thinking. Is Dan gonna do an analysis of this song in a very bad German voice? Don't worry, I'm not. I did take one semester of German in college, and I know certain lines like Bist du Abend? which means Are You Evening? Or Die Katze schmeckt mir gut. That cat tastes good to me. So don't worry, I'm not an expert. Now back to Autobahn. This was the breakout, completely unexpected hit single for Kraftwerk, in 1974 and 1975. They were a duo from Dusseldorf, Germany, Ralf und Florian, and they were one of the biggest pioneers in electronic music that still had a pop melody. After a few minor attempts at kraut rock in the early 70s, they switched to what they described as robot pop in 1974 with their release of Autobahn and the title track. That track was originally 22 minutes long on their album, but some radio programmer somewhere edited it down to 3 minutes and 20 seconds or whatever, and that's when it became this unexpected hit single all across America. Probably America's first view of this whole electronic scene. But if I would venture a guess, I'd say that American audiences didn't bring it to the top 40 because they were really amazed by the new sounds. They probably just saw it as another 70s weird novelty like Popcorn by Hot Butter or whatever. Especially because the most repeated lyric is Wir fahren, fahren, fahren auf der Autobahn, which might have just sounded like Fun, fun, fun on the Autobahn. Fun, fun, fun till the Kriegminister takes the Volkswagen away. But no, it just means we're driving, driving, driving on the Autobahn, that famous highway in Germany where you can go pretty damn fast. Although, real talk, the sample I provided was not the original 1975 mix. It was a re-recording from a 1991 remix album where they re-recorded much of their tracks, converting from analog to digital. That was just the version I came across, not the original one. And since I've heard that version first, my ears prefer it to the original. I've not heard the mix album, but a lot of complaints I've heard is that the digital technology was a little too new at the time, so the re-recording sounded really sterile. But I don't know, Autobahn sounds fun to me. It has more of a beat. It's quite compact at 9 minutes long, while keeping a lot of the elements from the original. And they actually have samples of cars whizzing by, whereas in the original they just had their synthesizer produce those type of sounds. Oh, and the best part? The mix has this section. That's like my favorite part of the song, man. It sounds like a German rockapella singing Autobahn, yet that wasn't anywhere in the original version. Bummer, man. Kraftwerk will show up again in the 2010 episodes of Music Is My Radar. But for now, let's take this Mercedes-Benz off the Autobahn, you Dummkopf. Replacing Kraftwerk at number one, we're back into the U.S. of A, man. Spending one week at number one, it's the pride of the Pacific Northwest, baby. Jimi Hendrix with Fire and Highway Child. Check out a little bit of Fire. Do you 
This analysis is going to be short and sweet, partially because we all know Hendrix, we all love Hendrix, and totally not because I took two weeks off and I'm kind of making up for lost time, so I'm cutting some corners. That's not it at all. Who said that? Suffice to say, it was during this period that I finally checked out Jimi Hendrix's greatest hits, being the college kid that I was. It's kind of like he is to that as Bob Marley is to the Legend album. Honestly, what can you say about the guy? Guitar hero, guitar legend, and he always just seemed like the coolest dude in whatever room he was in at the time. It's not just his guitar tricks that makes you think that. All the songs, he just has this nonchalant, yeah, I'm cool, I don't need to show it vocal tone. It just exudes badassery. Both of these songs come from his first album, Are You Experienced? Although technically only Fire came from that album whereas Highway Trial was originally the B-side to The Wind Cries Mary, but ended up on all the reissues to Are You Experienced? I had always suspected that Highway Trial was a bit autobiographical, talking about his career as a struggling musician in the so-called Chitlins circuit. I didn't make that term up, don't at me. But Fire had a funny origin story that I could not share. Although it's definitely sexually charged as a song, the term, let me stand next to your fire, and the famous move over rover and let Jimmy take over, were actually inspired by a visit that Hendrix made to experienced member Noel Redding's mother's house. It was a cold winter day, and Jimmy asked if he could stand next to the fireplace to keep warm, but then he noticed that the mother's Great Dane was in the way, so to get him out of the way, he said, move over rover and let Jimmy take over. And that's just a cute story. And may I reiterate that Jimi Hendrix was born in Seattle, Washington, so obviously the Seattleites rightfully claim him as his own. There's a Hendrix statue. He used to have his own exhibit at the Experience Music Project, or whatever it's called now, Museum of Pop Culture. These songs are great. Jimi Hendrix is a legend. What more can you say? Let's move on. Rounding out May and going into June, we finally have a three-week chart topper for 2004. And you guessed it. It's our man, Elvis Costello. Here he is with Uncomplicated and Tokyo Storm Warning. Here's a snippet of the latter. First off, spoiler alert, this will be the last time I'll be featuring Elvis Costello for the next couple of years. So if you're EC'd out, and why on earth would you be, have no fear. 
Both of these songs come from his 1986 album, Blood and Chocolate. That was sort of a reunion with the attractions after a couple years off. So on a previous episode in 2002, I talked about my first number one EDC song, Every Day I Write the Book, from 1983's Punch the Clock. That album and the next album, Goodbye Crew World, the band was really starting to come apart at the seams, and they got a little more poppy with some producers who slathered a bunch of circa 1984 popular production tricks on that album. It was a bit of a rush recording session, the 1986 ones, and like I said, he and the attractions were not getting along at all. So the album doesn't have the youthful punk energy like this year's model, but it's festered into more of a cynical, I've seen it all type thing, even though he was only in his 30s by then. Even though I didn't provide a sample of Uncomplicated, it's the album opener, and it's a very perfect one as far as setting the tone. There's thumping drums and a sludgy guitar, and Elvis's first line is, Blood and Chocolate! Like, hey, the title of the album. Much as I like the song, the one I kept going back to was Tokyo Storm Warning, the third song on the album. It's about six and a half minutes long, and it's just full of all kinds of imagery that's like an apocalypse of cynicism, as you can tell from just the verse I selected. Unlike other EC songs, I didn't even try to look up song meanings or anything. It's more about how the song makes me feel and what it reminds me of. In this case, it's almost like a cross between 19th Nervous Breakdown by the Rolling Stones and Stuck Inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again by Bob Dylan. Oh, by the way, both of those were number ones. I hear 19th Nervous Breakdown and the chord progression of the verses. Kind of the melody, kind of the guitar part. I think the connection's stronger to Stuck Inside of Mobile because both songs are six and a half minutes long full of imagery, just stuck in one place, even though Elvis is more resigned than restless. Like, all this crap is happening around them, but he's stuck in Tokyo, and hey, there's a storm warning. I think I'm a sucker for those type of songs that are six or seven minutes long, kind of repetitive, but very evocative. Other examples are Showbiz Kids by Steely Dan, my favorite Steely Dan song of all time, and a lot of the works by War on Drugs, or Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus, that you might be hearing about if I get around to 2019 number ones. But before I go on to the next song, here's where that Napoleon Dynamite callback is. See, on the album, Elvis Costello, for some reason, used a pseudonym of his called Napoleon Dynamite. It was all over the liner notes, and part of it was on the album cover. And guess what movie came out when the song was number one? Yep, Napoleon Dynamite. Talk about serendipity, eh? This isn't the time or place to talk about my love for the movie. Let's just say that it hits a sweet spot for this Idaho boy. So the story goes, the movie director, Jared Hess, encountered a guy who used that name while he was on his LDS mission in Illinois. But he had no idea that it was an Elvis Costello pseudonym until the final days of shooting where some teenage extra let him know about that. Obviously at that point it was too late to change the title. Elvis Costello didn't take any legal action that I know about. He just felt that he came up with the name first and that Hess got the name from him, whether directly or indirectly. I don't know, maybe I'll ask Napoleon about it. Hey, Napoleon! Okay, never mind. It sounds like he's busy. The final two number ones of June 2004 lasted only one week apiece. Here's the first one, week ending June 19th. A little 70s R&B to mix things up. It's the Spinners with Games People Play. Well, I spent 
all that day Fixing up to go somewhere Thought I was late And I found she wasn't there I guess I'll find Love, peace of mind some other time But I still have today I gotta get away, gotta get away I don't know where to go It's all about you and me and the games people play. Okay, wrong games people play. And true story, the group did have to rename their single to parentheses, they just can't stop it, parentheses, the games people play. So to not have it confused with that Joe South song that came out in 69 and the Spinner song came out in 1975. But enough of that geekery, let's talk about the Spinners a little bit. They were a vocal group that started around 1961, and they spent much of that decade in commercial obscurity. On the Motown Records label, but only a couple of minor top 40 hits. And in fact, they were utilized as road managers and chaperones for Motown touring groups, presumably to earn their keep and stay on the label. They switched labels in 1971 to Atlantic Records and they became one of the most successful soul groups of the 1970s. Hits like Could It Be I'm Falling in Love, I'll Be Around, Ghetto Child, The Rubber Band Man. Even though this song hit number 5 in 1975, it seems to be more of an obscure number, and I didn't hear it until listening to one of those stations I've talked about when Mom and Dad finally got Dish TV, those music-only networks. I would listen to the 70s R&B network quite a bit, Found some gems like Walking in Rhythm by the Blackbirds, Be Thankful for What You Got by William Devon, and this one. I think what made it stand out to me is how unconventional parts of it are. It's almost more like a country song than an R&B song. Got the country shuffle, guitar lick, some of the lines sound more country than R&B, and most notably, trade-off vocals. Especially how the last part of each verse, the lead singer stops singing in the middle of a verse, and the rest of it is finished off by a woman vocalist. Some accounts say that's a guest vocalist, Yvette Benton, but their producer, Tom Bell, had a different story. He claims that it was another member of the Spinner's vocals sped up to sound like a woman. Personally, I like to believe that it was the former, that maybe it was inspired by Stevie Wonder doing the similar trick on the start of You Are the Sunshine of My Life, where he had two different lead vocalists sing the first parts of the song before he eventually came in. Besides lead singer Bobby Smith, and Benton, the other vocalist featured on the song was the bass of the group Purvis Jackson, who sang that famous 1245 line that I faded out just before you got to hear. He would earn that nickname 1245 after that. Just a lot of interesting little details that makes it different from an average R&B song in the 70s. I think it's cool. The final song to hit number one in this episode, it's a group that we haven't seen on Music Is My Radar for almost four years. 
Here are the Bare Naked Ladies with Maybe Katie and Second Best, the sample coming from Maybe Katie. these guys from high school. They went on a three-year break in between 2000's Maroon and 2003's Everything to Everyone. They continued down the path of maturation on this album, even though if I recall correctly, I liked it a little more than Maroon, mainly because some of the production on Maroon was a little too sterile. Any of y'all remember the single from that album, Another Postcard? It's that terrible song about a fan sending him chimpanzees on postcards. Sort of an attempt to do one week part three. Of course you don't, it was terrible. And I'm pretty sure that was a career killer for them, at least as far as having hit singles go. But maybe Katie and Second Best are much, much better. Those songs should have been released as singles. A few words about Second Best. It's one of a few songs on Everything to Everyone that shows the Bare Naked Ladies in a political mood, as that song and a couple others may or may not be about George W. Bush, the Iraq War, or another song might talk about George W. Bush's urgent plea for people to go back to shopping after 9-11. I don't know, it ain't no American idiot. I'll just leave it at that. The more notable song to talk about now, in my opinion, is Maybe Katie. And let me just say I love how it starts. I'm a sucker for those old-timey tricks. I think that All Set the Metronome was probably a sample from some old recording. And of course, it starts off on a piano and a rinkety little mall organ before going into BOOM! 80s power pop mode. Mostly the Cars, circa their first two albums, which actually didn't come out in the 1980s, so never mind that. At the time, Maybe Katie reminded me of another Cars pastiche around that same time. Fountains of Wayne's Stacy's Mom. You know, that fluke top 40 hit from 2003. A total sellout because it talks about lusting for older women and even had Rachel Hunter in the video. And why the hell did they have a top 40 single and not They Might Be Giants? Okay, jealous fanboy talk over. I'll give the Fountains a few more listens and see if I really like them. Getting back on track, maybe Katie, like Stacy's mom, talks about a guy having a crush on an older woman although I don't think the age disparity is as pronounced on Maybe Katie. The subject of the song Katie has a daughter, and according to the first verse, her youth is fading doesn't mean she's not worth dating, so I always assume it was someone about 5 or 10 years older than the protagonist. Stephen Page sings the majority of this song, with Ed singing parts of the bridge. It didn't take me until another listen and a few research that those two voices could be an inner dialogue, each giving different advice. Steven's saying, hey, it's okay, you can date Katie, whereas Ed's like, eh, whatever, if you don't feel up to it, don't get too attached. I don't know, good song anyways. 
it would be another six years before the Bare Naked Ladies would have a number one, and by which point they would be down Stephen Page. But we'll get to that in due time. As far as honorable mentions go, this is another episode where a lot of the songs under the number ones were by artists that are already on the episode. A lot of Joe Jackson, Clash, Jimi Hendrix, Elvis Costello. There are two notable ones, though. Coming in at number 6 in June 2004 was the first of a band that we'd hear a lot more in about 5 or 6 years' time, XTC with Making Plans for Nigel. But the song I'm going to play out this episode with is the number 2 song behind Safe European Home. It's Marshall Crenshaw's utterly perfect power pop song, Someday, Someway. And that'll wrap up this episode of Music Is My Radar. As always, thank you very much for listening, and thanks for your patience. Now that the new living situation is sorted out and most of the temporary chaos is gone, I'll be back to my once-a-week schedule. See you all next week as we continue on the 2004 journey. What are you going to do today, Napoleon? Whatever I feel like I want to do. God! Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all of the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.